Hello everyone and welcome to Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds, and Case Reviews with your host, Dr. Anil Harrison, who is the Program Director and Chair of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Central Florida and HCA Florida West Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. Dr. Harrison has prepared a Grand Rounds episode for us today. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or the views of Consulting 360. Hello, Dr. Harrison. How are you today? Good morning, Jessica. I'm doing very well. Thank you. I'm happy to hear that. We have an interesting case presentation and we'd like to hear your thoughts on how to care for this patient. Please tell us about our patient today. It's an interesting patient, I would say, uh, Jessica. We have a 65-year-old hypertensive with COPD and type 2 diabetes mellitus who presents with headaches and bilateral tinnitus for six months. The headaches described are generalized, continuous, mild, though nagging, without any constitutional symptoms nor fever. He also reports symptoms of erythromelalgia. You mentioned the patient's blood pressure is 150 over 94, his heart rate is 80, per minute. His temperature is 98 degrees Fahrenheit. His respiratory rate is 14 and his BMI is 35. In his personal history, he smokes and consumes a couple of martinis every day, shaken, not stirred. He lives with his sixth wife, 30 years of age, who happens to be a pastry chef, and he lives at 10,000 feet altitude in Mount Taos and is an avid YouTuber, is living a life of splendor. His medications include maximum doses of chlorothaladone, lisinopril, amlodipine, canagliflozin, a long-acting muscarinic agent inhaler, a long-acting beta-agonist inhaler, and a short-acting rescue inhaler. His exam reveals mildly erythematous palms, a few wheezes on auscultation. His cardiovascular, central nervous system, abdomen systems are benign. So Jessica, the synopsis is we have a male in his mid-60s with hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and COPD who presents with chronic persistent headaches associated with bilateral tinnitus and erythromelalgia. The labs reveal an h and of 16.5 and 49, a white cell count of 5,000, a platelet count of 210,000. His sodium is 140, his potassium is 3.4, chloride is 100, his bicarb is 27, his BUN is 20, his creatinine is 1.5, his PSA is 4.2, his hemoglobin A1C is 7.8. On his lipid panel, his total cholesterol is 210, his LDL cholesterol is 112, his HDL is 37, while his triglycerides are 400 milligram percent. His testosterone levels are 150, and he had a stool guaiac times one, which is negative. And he is up to date on his immunizations until 20 years ago. So if you realize one thing, Jessica, our minds have an uncanny way of picking things which are out of sorts. And with our patient, the h and of 16.5 and 49, along with a potassium of 3.4, a creatinine of 1.5, a PSA of 4.2, and perhaps a hemoglobin A1C of 7.8, a total cholesterol of 210, an LDL of 112, HDL of 37, and triglycerides of 400, along with a testosterone level of 150, to me, seem 
abnormal. And I also wonder why was only one stool guac done? Because there is nothing in the history to suggest us looking for an occult GI bleed. Although if this were for colon cancer screening, we know that one specimen is not enough. One needs three consecutive stool guacs instead. Also, our patient had no immunizations for the past 20 years. So uh, that is also a concern. What are your thoughts? Why the headaches and why the erythromyalgia? Sure. There have been no symptoms to suggest raised intracranial tension uh, with this patient's headaches, such as nausea or projectile vomiting. His neurological exam has been deemed normal, although he has bilateral tinnitus. There are no signs to suggest meningeal irritation. There, are no, there is no focal neurological deficit. So with chronic persistent headaches for six months, Besides a thorough neurological exam, I would also like to know what is fundi revealed. I would also like to confirm that there are no carotid bruises nor any hums when auscultated over the scalp and the eyeballs. His fundi were normal except for some non-peripheralated diabetic retinopathy. There were no cardioid bruises or any bruises or hums over the scalp or the eyeballs. Another question is why the tinnitus? Okay. So the bilateral tinnitus accompanying his headaches without any vertigo, Jessica, uh, which are constant and without any cyclical uh, episodes. Uh, what about his ear exam? I wonder if Renee's and Weber's tests have been conducted. So Weber's and Renee's, why? Well, to evaluate for tinnitus and possible hearing loss and trying to ascertain if there is hearing loss, uh, would it be a conductional or sensorineural uh, hearing loss, which would give me an idea to further evaluate possibilities with maybe audiometry and maybe a MRI, MRA of his brain. Those are the things that I would consider, and perhaps even an MRV, which is magnetic resonance venography. While trying to rule out structural abnormalities in the brain and the vasculature, as well as the venous flow around the brain. His ear exams were normal. Renee's and Weber's tests were also non-contributory. Okay, great. So as we know, there are several pathologies that can cause both symptomatic headache and tinnitus, such as uh, carotid artery dissections, arteriovenous malformations, traumatic brain injury, space-occupying uh, intracranial lesions, demyelinating disorders such as multiple sclerosis. Uh, and by the way, intracranial hypo and hypertension uh, can also give you symptomatic headache with tinnitus. And of course, on occasion, migraine headaches can also do that. What is erythromyalgia? Erythromyalgia is a condition, Jessica, characterized by episodes of pain, redness, and swelling in various parts of the body, particularly the hands and feet. These episodes are usually triggered by an increased body temperature, which may be caused by exercise or entering a warm room. Ingesting alcohol or spicy foods may also trigger an episode. So a role for vascular changes in the pathogenesis of erythromyalgia is suggested by the finding of increased blood flow, and they say up to about 10 folds increase as measured by laser Doppler. On the other hand, there is a suggestion of large and small fiber neuropathy uh, that might be uh, a contributing factor for erythromyalgia. So why the erythromyalgia? Although originally this was described in association with myeloproliferative disorders such as 
essential thrombo, uh, thrombocytosis, uh, CML, polycythemia vera, myelofibrosis. Erythromyalgia appears to be associated with underlying myeloproliferative disorders in less than 10% of cases. So a diagnosis of myeloproliferative disease may precede, follow, or coincide with the development of erythromyalgia. So coming to our patient, Jessica, who has diabetes and hypertension and he smokes, I would like to also consider neuropathy as well as peripheral artery disease as possibilities for the etiology of his erythromyalgia. Therefore, putting all three together, the chronic persistent headaches with bilateral tinnitus and erythromyalgia, I wonder if the patient's erythrocytosis is the reason for his symptoms. And while we are evaluating this patient, to complete the picture, we also have to evaluate historically for how long has he had the diabetes, COPD, and hypertension, and how well controlled have they been? what evaluations have been done in the past. And very importantly, if this patient could have a family history of something like a myeloproliferative disorder, early onset COPD, diabetes, hypertension, and vascular events. What would you look for on this patient's physical examination if you had to reevaluate? Sure, Jessica. So following this, even though I have a complete physical exam, which has been mentioned as normal, except for mild bilateral pitting pedal edema, these are the things that I'm going to think of. I want to see this person's fundi to look for papilledema. I also want to do a visual field examination as well. Uh, I want to examine his mouth uh, to assess uh, for malampati score and perhaps even a Ferguson tongue score. Uh, I would like to measure his neck circumference as a consideration for, you know, obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, while auscultating, I would like to focus on, you know, does he have a parasternal heave? Does he have a loud P2? Those are things to assess for pulmonary hypertension. I would also like to feel for his liver and spleen, you know, could he have polycythemia vera? Or could he have cirrhosis of the liver with long-standing alcohol intake? I would like to assess him for clubbing and cyanosis, uh, markers for hypoxia or for intra and extracardiac shunts. I definitely want to feel his peripheral pulses to evaluate for peripheral artery disease, given his several comorbidities and the fact that he also has erythromyalgia. Now, the pedal edema that you mentioned, you know, the question is, is that iatrogenic because, you know, he is on amlodipine or could it be secondary to uh, left or right heart failure or could it be because of cirrhosis of the liver or does this patient have varicose veins? So while thinking about etiologies uh, with either increased hydrostatic pressures or reduced oncotic pressures in the veins, I would like to conduct those examinations. Now, I would also like to look for peripheral signs of chronic liver disease. Uh, with his history of significant alcohol consumption, his social life, could he also have hepatitis C uh, resulting in cirrhosis? And of course, I'd like to evaluate him for neuropathy because of his diabetes and his alcohol consumption, and as a possibility, could he have polycythemia vera? What are your thoughts on this patient's laboratory results? So my thoughts, Jessica, you know, with his H&H &H of 16.7 and 49, he has a normal white cell count, a normal platelet count. Uh, I would like to get a CBC with a differential to evaluate for a bit more information, especially 
on the differential on the WBCs, I mean, are there any immature cells? Does this patient have uh, basophilia? And because of his elevated H&H, I would like to do an iron panel to rule out iron excess, such as hemochromatosis. I would certainly want to do an LFT because of his erythrocytosis and his increased alcohol intake. I would like to perhaps get a SED rate and a CRP. These are markers which would help ascertain the severity of an underlying disease or disorder uh, that the patient might have. Now, with an h and that is elevated, I certainly would want to get serum erythropoietin levels. Uh, this would help in the evaluation of erythrocytosis to see what the bone marrow response is, uh, his erythropoietin driving the erythrocytosis, or is his erythrocytosis secondary to something else? I would also like to get a pulse ox with his erythrocytosis, with his uh, history of tobacco use. And uh, the other thing is we have only one, one value on his testosterone. So as we know that, you know, testosterone levels are highest in the morning and lowest in the afternoon with physical activity, uh, food, stress, uh, the amount of body fat, uh, which can influence the levels uh, and therefore, I would like to get a repeat testosterone level at about eight in the morning. And depending on if the second level comes back low or normal, further testing might be required uh, by getting perhaps an FSH, a follicular stimulating hormone, uh, luteinizing hormone, and uh, uh, prolactin levels. The other thing is his potassium is low. Now, People might say, well, he's on chlorothalidone, or it could be something else which is causing the hypokalemia. I doubt the low potassium would be because of you know, reduced consumption of potassium, which is a rare cause of hypokalemia. The question is whether the patient is losing potassium in the stools, though there is no history of diarrhea. Could the patient be losing potassium in the urine, especially uh, and especially if we actually hold chlorothalidone for a few days and then repeat a serum potassium and also do a urine potassium to creatinine ratio. If the ratio is less than 13 in the urine, it would point to extra renal causes such as poor ingestion, loss in the stools, or transcellular shifts. As opposed to, if the potassium creatinine ratio is greater than 13, then this would point towards renal losses of potassium uh, such as uh, what occurs with the uh, stimulation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone uh, system. The other point is, why was a PSA done? Uh, my question on a PSA would be, it might have been a shared decision between the patient and the physician realizing the issues with doing a PSA. Unless the patient has a significant family history of prostate cancer or has African-American ethnicity, the question is, what do we do now? The other thing I mentioned was a stool guac was done. So if it was for colon cancer screening, we need three consecutive samples. Another thing I would do is I would do an urine-albumin-creatinine ratio because the patient is a diabetic, and this would help us gauge if the patient has moderate or severe uh, albuminuria. If negative for urine-albumin, that would be a relief. Another consideration would be, should we actually conduct spirometry on this patient? The patient has a diagnosis of COPD, 
and I understand his history of smoking, I perhaps would like to get a PFT done and stage his COPD with the gold criteria and with his symptoms uh, to see if the inhalers are actually enough for this patient. Now, another thing would be, should we get an EKG or an echo? I would say yes, the patient has hypertension and that too resistant hypertension because he already is on three antihypertensives. So an EKG is absolutely warranted. If on the EKG, I find abnormalities such as left ventricular hypertrophy or any evidence of prior MI, it would give me good enough ground to get an echocardiogram as well. But this patient has a possibility of sleep apnea. He has COPD. So I think I would go with an echo to see what the pulmonary pressures are and if there is any right ventricular hypertrophy. In our patient, I would also like to get a hep B, a hep C, and HIV. Uh, the WHO recommendations, every patient needs to be checked for hepatitis C. And this patient is a diabetic, so I'd like to check him for hepatitis B. And with his social life, I'd like to at least get an HIV, which is also a recommendation that one needs to get that done on every patient at some point. What about his elevated triglycerides? Yeah, Jessica, his uh, triglycerides are 400 milligram percent, and this could be related to his elevated blood sugar, of course, his alcohol, uh, his weight, and his diet. Uh, so I feel hopefully with lifestyle changes and with better control of his blood sugars, his triglycerides will get better. At this point, with his elevated atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk of greater than 20%, putting him on a high-dose statin would be my top priority. With repeat blood work, if his triglycerides are still elevated or are higher, at that point, I might consider starting him on something like ethyl. Are there any questionnaires or risk assessment tools you would utilize? Absolutely, Jessica. You know, I would do an ASCVD risk score, uh, which has already been done on this patient. It's more than 20%. Because he's a diabetic, uh, we know that he needs to be on at least a moderate dose statin. Uh, but in addition, he has hypertension, he's a smoker, he's in the geriatric age group. And with his ASCVD score of more than 20%, he needs to be in a high dose statin. Uh, I would like to calculate his GFR uh, using the Crockford Gold equation, which is 140 minus age, uh, multiplied by body weight in kilograms, divided by 72 uh, times his uh, serum creatinine. I would also like to conduct a stop-bang questionnaire, where S stands for snoring, T for tiredness, O for observed apnea, B for blood pressure, B is a body mass index, N is uh, your next circumference and uh, G being gender. So a score of three to four is intermediate risk, whereas a score uh, that is uh, five to eight is considered to uh, be high risk for patients having uh, sleep apnea. Uh, besides, I would also like to consider a PHQ-2 and even a PHQ-9. Uh, since depression affects an estimated 1 in 15 adults uh, in any given year. And 1 in 6 people, which is about 16%, will experience depression at some time in their lives. Fortunately, there is a better awareness for mental health, Jessica, and I feel at least a PHQ-2 should be ordered uh, on every patient who walks into the clinic. And if positive, this ought to be followed by a PHQ-9. 
depression is defined by a score of greater than 10 out of a possibility of a score of 27. So I would conduct an alcohol use disorder questionnaire as well, either a cage or a mast. A standard drink is, you know, five ounces of wine or 12 ounces of beer or 1.5 ounces of 80 proof spirit. What I do is I ask the patient, how many times has he or she ever had more than five drinks in the past one year? And if uh, say yes, then I go on to, you know, either an audit C or a cage or a mast questionnaire. With the smoking, I would obviously like to calculate his pack per year smoking history. So if you smoke 20 cigarettes a day for a year, that is one pack a year, and you multiply it by the number of years uh, that the patient has smoked. And the reason for this is that, you know, the guidelines are that if a patient has a 20-pack year smoking history um, uh, and are either current smokers or former smokers having quit within the past 15 years, the guidelines are that one needs to get a low-dose helical CAT scan of the lungs. The other thing is uh, I would like also to see if our patient has heart failure or is he at risk for heart failure. So our patient, uh, Jessica, has a sedentary lifestyle, so we really cannot assess his NYHA uh, heart failure stage, although there has been no mention of orthopnea or PND, and the patient does not have uh, any significant uh, shortness of breath. There was no JVD mentioned. There was no positive HJR. There was no LVS3 or LVS4, and the cardiac apex was not displaced. Therefore, he probably does not have NYHA class 4 heart failure. Though given the fact that he has diabetes, hypertension, uh, probably sleep apnea, he's elderly, he's male, uh, he definitely is at risk for heart failure. You mentioned his sedentary lifestyle. Out of curiosity, as a YouTuber, how many METs or metabolic equivalents does he burn? What are some other considerations you might have for this patient when evaluating? Sure, Jessica. So a MET or metabolic equivalent is widely used in the cardiovascular population exercise guidelines. It's actually a means of quantifying the uh, energy demands of physical activity. It uh, relates the rate of the body's oxygen uptake called the VO2 for a given activity as a multiple of an individual's resting VO2. So you'd agree, Jessica, with his very sedentary lifestyle, he probably burns no more than one mat. Uh, this would be different if he were jumping rope. Uh, that would be approximately 10 mats. Would you say that he has chronic kidney disease? So chronic kidney disease is defined as the presence of kidney damage, uh, usually detected as urinary albumin creatinine ratio uh, greater than 30 milligrams per day or equivalent or decreased kidney function where the GFR is less than 60 ml per minute. So this has to be over a period of three months and irrespective of the cause. Therefore, to answer your question, I would wait on calculating this patient's GFR and his urine albumin creatinine ratio before we say that he might have CKD or not. Is he at risk for falls? Talk to us about his fall risk assessment. Sure, Jessica. An assessment of fall risk should be integrated into the history and physical exam of all geriatric patients, including those not specifically being uh, seen for a problem with falling. 
So all older patients or the caregivers should be asked at least once a year about falls. The frequency of falling, are there any difficulties in gait or balance? For patients who report a single fall, gait and balance deficits should be evaluated as a screen for identifying ind individuals who may benefit from a multifactorial fall risk assessment. A multifactorial fall risk assessment should be performed for community-dwelling older persons who report recurrent, which means two or more falls, who report difficulties with gait or balance, and who seek medical attention or present to the ER because of a fall. When this patient is in the office, besides asking the above questions, one could conduct a get up and go test. The test is performed by observing the uh, subject rising from a standard armchair, walking a fixed distance across the room, turning around and walking back to the chair and sitting back down. While doing this, observation of the different components of this test may help to identify deficits in leg strength, balance, vestibular function, and gait. The timed part of the test records the mean time in seconds from initially getting up to reseating, and patients are then compared with the mean time of adults in their age group of be it 60 to 69, 70 to 79, and 80 to 99. Does he have peripheral artery disease? That's a great question. Since the patient has several risk factors for peripheral artery disease and with his lifestyle, the question is whether PAD precludes him from walking. Therefore, more questions need to be asked if he has any symptoms to suggest claudication and while examining, looking for dermatological and vascular changes, especially in the lower extremities, listening for bruises and feeling for distal pulses are very important. Could he have coronary artery disease? Another great question. Since the patient has several risk factors, uh, sedentary lifestyle, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, tobacco, the probability is high that he has coronary artery disease. I will start off by doing an ASCVD risk assessment, which includes race, sex, age, total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, systolic blood pressure, if the patient is on a medication for hypertension, the patient is a diabetic, and the patient smokes. So our patient has an ASCVD risk of greater than 20%, and he would definitely benefit from a high-dose statin along with a baby aspirin to be taken every day. What are the chances of him having fatty steatosis or cirrhosis? I think without an ultrasound or LFTs, it is difficult to say, but with his body habitus and his drinking issues and his weight, there is a good chance that he might have at least fatty steatosis, if not cirrhosis. Would you recommend an ultrasound of his abdominal aorta? And what are some of the screening tests that would be conducted? Absolutely, Jessica. Uh, we recommend a one-time screening for abdominal aortic aneurysm with an abdominal ultrasound in men aged 65 to 75 who have ever smoked. So screening for an aneurysm in men over age 65 is associated with a decreased risk of abdominal aortic aneurysm mortality. So as we mentioned, he has a mildly elevated serum prostate-specific antigen. Tell us about the elevated PSA. 
The serum PSA is a valuable marker, Jessica, for prostate cancer. However, its sensitivity and specificity are not perfect as a screening tool. An elevated PSA value can also be due to many other causes. One promising method to improve specificity of PSA testing for men who have total values of 4 to 10, just as our patient does, and to improve sensitivity at levels below 4 is to include PSA isoforms, such as free to total PSA ratio. The percentage of free PSA to total PSA has been used to improve the sensitivity of cancer detection when the total PSA is in normal range and to increase the specificity of cancer detection when it is in the gray zone of 4 to 10. So in the latter group, the lower the value of free to total PSA, the greater is the likelihood that an elevated PSA represents cancer and not BPH. Another approach has been to assess the rate of PSA change over time, which is called the PSA velocity. An elevated serum PSA that continues to rise over time is more likely to reflect prostate cancer than one that is consistently stable. In one study, a PSA velocity cut off at 0.75 nanograms per ml per year distinguished patients with prostate cancer from those with either BPH or no prostate disease with a specificity of 90 to 100% respectively. Therefore, what I would do, since the patient does not have a family history of prostate cancer, the possibility is, could the slight elevation of PSA be due to BPH or could it be prostate cancer? Therefore, I would repeat a PSA along with a free PSA in about six months to a year. If the free PSA to total PSA ratio is low or if the PSA velocity in a year has gone up to 0.75, the chances are that this is prostate cancer. If not, then it is BPH. What other tests would you conduct? So our patient could have elevated BMP because of left heart failure, right heart failure, COPD. And he also has a high probability of sleep apnea. And with his renal function not being the best, we feel that the BNP would be elevated. So the recommendations are, if the patient is admitted with a diagnosis of heart failure, getting a BNP and a serum troponin would help prognostically, although following levels of BNP would not be a good idea. So you mentioned that our patient has a mild elevation of BNP. So the other question you asked me, would, you, would I do a D-dimer? Again, a D-dimer can be elevated because of several reasons, and I would do it only if I'm considering a possibility that suggests something like a DVT or a pulmonary embolism. With his well score of zero, DVT seems unlikely. If it were greater than two, then I would consider DVT as a probable etiology. And as we know, if it's between three to eight, then the probability is high. And that is a time I'd definitely be concerned. But with a well score of zero, I probably would not get a D-dimer. His D-dimer was negative. Therefore, I would look no further. Would you do a urinalysis? I would not do a urinalysis without any symptoms and without any red herrings. Though, as I mentioned, I would get a urine for albumin creatinine ratio. His urinalysis was negative. Would you check sputum for malignant cytology? Uh, I would not. He has no symptoms of lung cancer, and in addition, sputum for malignant cells has limitations for molecular and histo histochemical staging. 
getting a piece of the tissue if he has cancer is better and staging it with imaging studies would be the way to go. Only if the patient refuses a biopsy, we could consider sputum for malignant cytology, which has a 42 to 97% sensitivity for non-small cell lung cancers. Would you do urine for malignant cytology? Uh, urine cytology has a relatively poor sensitivity, particularly for low-grade tumors. Most urine-based molecular markers are more sensitive than urine cytology in the detection of urothelial cancers, specifically for low-grade tumors. But the specificity of molecular markers is inferior to the, that of urine cytology. Would you do an ultrasound of his liver? I think that's reasonable especially if we find some abnormalities on his LFT. And if one finds a fatty liver, then getting a fiber scan subsequently would be the best thing to do. How would you approach the erythrocytosis? So erythrocytosis, and Jessica, is uh, if the hemoglobin is greater than 16 in women and greater than 16.5 in men. So while thinking about erythrocytosis, the consideration should be is this relative erythrocytosis, that is, without an absolute increase in the RBC mass. This could happen because of loss of plasma volume. If the above is not the case, then you have to consider, is it primary polycythemia caused by mutation, uh, such as polycythemia vera, or is it secondary polycythemia because of hypoxia? Or could it be because of an erythropoietin-producing tumor, such as uh, hepatocellular carcinomas, renal cell carcinomas, uh, hemangioblastomas, pheochromocytomas, and uterine myomas? So the first thing I would do is exclude dehydration, which would account for relative er erythrocytosis. Remember, our patient uh, was on uh, chlorothaladone or is on chlorothaladone. The second thing I would do is I would check uh, erythropoietin levels. So I think this patient is on an SGLT2 inhibitor, and SGLT2 inhibitors can cause elevated uh, erythropoietin levels. And we've mentioned other reasons for elevated erythropoietin being, you know, hypoxia and uh, the tumors that erythropoietin producing tumors. Of course, remember, a patient probably has hypoxia. He's a smoker. He's living at a very high altitude. He might have secondary polycythemia. If the erythropoietin levels are normal, it is only then that I would do a JAK2 uh, V167F and uh, perhaps a JAK2 exon 12 mutation. And if that is positive, this points towards polycythemia vera. In our patient, his CBC with differential showed no leukocytosis. There was no thrombocytosis. This patient had no basophilia. He reported no post-bath uh, pruritus. He had no splenomegaly and his serum erythropoietin levels were elevated. So his erythrocytosis has secondary causes, and I would not do any genetic markers to look looking for polycythemia vera. So etiologies for our patients' erythrocytosis, are, I feel, are related to hypoxia and elevated carbon monoxide from smoking. It could be because of high altitude. It could be because of sleep apnea. And of course, as I mentioned, it could be because he's on a SGLT2 inhibitor. Should we be worried about his low potassium? Yeah, Jessica. So the concerns are low potassium and hypertension, and the patient is on three blood pressure medications. This is called resistant hypertension. Though I understand he's on chlorothaladone, uh, the hypokalemia is concerning. 
if you also think about he's on lisinopril and his kidneys are not the best, so you might have expected hyperkalemia instead. But if you're still not sure, uh, you could take the patient off chlorothaladone for a few days and repeat another serum potassium. And if it's still low, I would do a urine potassium creatinine ratio. Uh, if elevated, it suggests renal losses, which could be secondary to a hyperaldo, hyperaldosteronism state. While discussing his resistant hypertension, I would also like to mention that his uh, probable sleep apnea could also be a contributing uh, factor for his uh, resistant hypertension. How would you go about evaluating for hyperaldosteronism given the fact that the patient has resistant hypertension with hypokalemia? Yeah, Jessica. So I would consider a serum aldosterone and renin level and do a ratio of aldosterone to renin. If the ratio is less than 20 is to 1, that is secondary hyperaldosteronism. So things like renal artery stenosis, cirrhosis, cardosis, or heart failure would be considerations. If the ratio of aldosterone to renin is greater than 20 is to 1, then one has to consider the possibility of primary hyperaldosteronism, following which you could uh, do a salt loading test and, if positive, do a CT or an MRI of the adrenal glands, evaluating for primary hyperaldosteronism. Remember, in 25% of the cases, it is because of an adrenal adenoma, whereas 75% of the cases, it is actually because of adrenal hyperplasia. What do you think could be the reason for this patient's secondary hyperaldosteronism? This patient's diuretic was held for several days before conducting this test. So, Jessica, therefore, you know, the diuretic use probably has been ruled out as an etiology for his secondary hyperaldosteronism. So, his secondary hyperaldosteronism could be either because of renal artery stenosis or because of cirrhosis of his liver. I don't think he has nephrotic syndrome. So, and since there is no history of vomiting or diarrhea or low intake of salt, I would like to consider possibilities of renal artery stenosis in this patient. Even though on clinical exam, there were no renal bruise, though that should not preclude one from evaluating for renal artery stenosis, given the fact that the patient's creatinine was also elevated. I would therefore start off with non-invasive mode of getting a duplex renal artery ultrasound, and if required, follow it up with either an MRA or a CTA. Having said that, if one discovers renal artery stenosis, most often surgical intervention is not required. Instead, uh, one intensifies medical therapy, uh, which would be more appropriate. What are your thoughts on the elevation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? We calculated the patient's GFR as 70. By the way, I was going through this patient's records and I found that he had a duplex renal artery ultrasound and subsequently a magnetic resonance in geography of his renal arteries, and uh, it revealed bilateral renal stenosis, renal artery stenosis. The stenosis was less than 60%, with less than 180 centimeter per second flow velocity across the stenosis. There is mild echogenicity, but normal-sized kidneys. What intervention would be best? Would you also consider holding his ACE inhibitor with an elevated creatinine and low GFR? I would not hold off as an, on his uh, ACE inhibitor, Jessica, and will only consider doing that if, you know, the GFR goes below 30% or, you know, the serum potassium goes above 5.6 milliequivalents per liter. 
Some folks would actually cut back on the dose of an ACE inhibitor in this scenario and reevaluate creatinine and potassium and then make a decision. So if you see our patient's potassium is low and his GFR was 70, therefore I would continue his ACE inhibitor due to the benefits of these medications reducing intraglomerular pressure and preventing subsequent kidney damage. Uh, the other thing is, uh, Jessica, you had questions on which intervention would be considered as of now, given the fact that the patient has bilateral renal artery stenosis. So I agree that the patient has bilateral renal artery stenosis, but it does not seem to be significant with the measurements that you have mentioned uh, of the stenotic lesions and the velocity across the stenosis. Therefore, I would recommend medical management with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers while following the patient's creatinine and potassium. If the GFR and the potassium are stable, then we're doing fine using these medications. Very importantly, I would also consider better management of his diabetes, putting this patient on an aspirin along with a statin. Somebody had asked me, you know, the indications of putting a stent or doing an angioplasty for renal artery stenosis. So the indications for unilateral renal artery stenosis for stent placement or, or angioplasty are a short duration of blood pressure elevation prior to the diagnosis of renovascular disease since this is the strongest clinical predictor of a fall in blood pressure after renal revascularization, or if there's a failure of optimal medical therapy to control the patient's blood pressure, or the patient is intolerant to optimal medical therapy, or if the patient encounters flash pulmonary edema and or refractory heart failure. So those are my thoughts, Jessica. So once again, our patient's ASCVD risk score is more than 20%. His urine albumin creatinine ratio is 60. His fundi show background diabetic retinopathy. His pulse ox is low at 85% on room air. And evaluating sleep apnea in a patient has a malampati score of three out of four and a stop bang score of more than five. With all of this information, what is this patient at high risk for? This patient is at very high risk for coronary artery disease. And as a matter of fact, an ASCVD risk assessment must be done for everyone between age 40 to 75. Folks not only have a higher risk for coronary artery disease, but also heart failure, TIAs, strokes, peripheral artery disease, thoracic and abdominal aortic aneurysms. Therefore, besides better diabetes and hypertension control, he needs to be in a high-dose statin along with aspirin. The other thing, Jessica, is with this fundoscopic exam revealing non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and his albumin creatinine ratio of 60 confirm moderate microalbuminuria, uh, these represent that the patient's microvasculature have already been affected and confirms significant primary prevention opportunities with lifestyle modifications such as tobacco cessation, better diabetes control, better blood pressure control, and putting the person on a high-dose statin and aspirin. The other thing is, you know, his pulse ox of 85% on room air confirms that the patient has hypoxia, uh, either because of COPD and perhaps the high altitude. And this patient needs to be on oxygen at all times to keep his saturations above 90%. 
Another thing is with our patient who has a malum patty score of three, which means uh, when only the soft palate and the base of the uvula are visible, and with a stop bank score of greater than five, he has a very high probability of obstructive sleep apnea. I was reading through the notes and I find that this patient had an apnea hypopnea index score of greater than 30, which means that he has severe sleep apnea. Our patient underwent an evaluation for sleep apnea and AHI-RDI-REI greater than 30. What would you recommend? Oral appliance, orthodontal surgery, CPAP, BiPAP? Yeah, so an AHI or apnea hypopnea index, the RDI stands for respiratory Dis disturbance index and the REI represents respiratory event index. If the values are between 5 and 14. This constitutes mild sleep apnea, 15 to 30 as moderate, and anything over 30 as severe sleep apnea. How important is this? Well, the number might just be numbers. The fact that the patient has sleep, severe sleep apnea puts them at several risks, such as neuropsych issues with irritability and inattentiveness. Also, the patient is at high risk for motor vehicle accidents. Besides, he is at very high risk for coronary artery disease, heart failure, arrhythmia, stroke, pulmonary hypertension, type 2 diabetes, gout, fatty liver, etc. So of these, the patient already has type 2 diabetes and hypertension. And as we evaluate him, other possibilities might come up. Another thing is with obstructive sleep apnea, it should be approached as a chronic disease that requires long-term multidisciplinary management. The potential benefits of successfully treating sleep apnea include clinical improvements, example, less daytime sleepiness, reduced healthcare utilization and costs, and possibly decreased cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. Therefore, besides lifestyle changes such as weight loss, avoiding alcohol and tobacco, behavioral therapies also need to be instituted. With our patient with severe sleep apnea, he needs positive airway pressure with either CPAP or BiPAP. If he had mild to moderate sleep apnea and the patient absolutely refused you know, a CPAP or a BiPAP, in those instances, oral appliances could have been considered. The goals of sleep apnea therapy are to resolve signs and uh, symptoms of sleep apnea, improve sleep quality, and normalize the apnea hypopnea index, along with the oxyhemoglobin saturation levels. What about surgery such as bariatric surgery? Great question, Jessica. So the recommendations are that one has to try positive airway pressure therapy first and give it about three months before considering oral surgery or bariatric surgery. So once again, you know, a patient with diabetes with a hemoglobin A1C of 7.8 is kind of okay for a 65-year-old person. Does he need a dietitian or diabetes educator? And does his creatinine or GFR preclude him from using metformin? Yeah, so most adult patients should have a hemoglobin A1C below 7 which gives an indirect measurement of, you know, the fasting blood sugars being below 130 milligram percent and the two-hour postprandial blood sugars being below 180 milligram percent. In the elderly, having a hemoglobin A1c greater than 8 is perfectly reasonable. Given his significant comorbidities, I would recommend having the patient see a dietitian and a diabetic educator. 
to answer your question, Jessica, his GFR of 70 does not preclude him from being on metformin. Only if the GFR were less than 45, I would consider halving or reducing the dose of his metformin. And if his GFR went below 30, that would be the time I would take him off metformin, otherwise not. And the reason for that would be because lower GFRs uh, does predispose you know, a person to lactic acidosis, especially with compromised renal functions. So I think one of the residents had asked me this question, would you consider holding off on the SGLT2 inhibitors? Because we said, you know, the secondary erythrocytosis that the patient had could be because of that. Now, that is a great question, considering that this patient's erythrocytosis might be secondary to the SGLT2 inhibitor. Although we have several other reasons for this patient to have secondary erythrocytosis. We know that SGLT2 inhibitors are, you know, cardioprotective and are renoprotective. And therefore, I would tend to continue the SGLT2 inhibitors and monitor the patient's H&H. If the H&H did not improve or was getting worse, then I would probably consider taking the patient off the SGLT2 inhibitor and replacing it with, let's say, a GLP-1 agonist, which is also cardioprotective. The GLP-1 agonist, along with metformin, would be argued for better diabetes control, weight loss, and cardiovascular benefits. Another question posed by a resident was, how often do you intend checking the hemoglobin A1c, the urine-albumin-creatinine ratio, doing a retinal exam, doing a foot exam? The answer to that is the hemoglobin A1c can probably be checked maybe twice a year, especially if the diabetes is under, you know, reasonable control. If it weren't, then I would recommend checking it, you know, every three months. Foot and retinal eye exams once a year is what is recommended. Which antihypertensive would you consider and why? So I would probably consider putting him on spironolactone with the added advantage of addressing his uh, low potassium and the possibility of a mineralocorticoid excess as discussed before. As a word of caution with spironolactone, serum potassium and renal function should be checked in three days after you start the medication, then in a week, and then at least, you know, monthly for about three months, followed by quarterly for about a year. If adding or increasing the dose of concomitant ACE inhibitors or ARBs, a new cycle of monitoring should be done. Remember, if serum potassium goes above 5.5 or renal functions worsen, the advice would be to hold the spironolactone until the potassium gets to below 5 milliequivalents per liter. And then you can certainly consider restarting with a reduced dose after cons confirming resolution of, you know, the hyperkalemia and the renal insufficiency for at least 72 hours. Why do you think our patient has one plus pitting pedal edema? Yeah, so in our patient with resistant hypertension and one plus pitting pedal edema, my thoughts are it could be because of the amlodipine the patient is on, or it could be because of core pulmonale secondary to his COPD or sleep apnea. It could be because of his hypertension. It could be because of heart failure. It could be because of dependent edema with varicosities. And of course, you know, uh, he, he might have a fatty liver and or cirrhosis, and that could also cause lower extremity pitting pedal edema. So the other thing you mentioned, uh, uh, the EKG on this patient showed right ventricular hypertrophy and P pulmonale. So my thoughts would be that this probably is secondary to COPD with core pulmonale, or it could be because of sleep apnea, 
with right ventricular failure. And of course, uh, one has to think about chronic pulmonary thromboembolism as an etiology, uh, since our patient is uh, pretty much sedentary. An echo reveals normal left chambers, EF55, left ventricular diastolic dysfunction, and pulmonary pressures greater than 30. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, so this... Um tells one that, uh, you know, this person has a diastolic dysfunction along with moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension. Fortunately, his ejection fraction is 55, which is okay. It's slightly below normal or, you know, at the cusp, I would say. So those are my thoughts on this patient. So it does happen on spironolactone that, you know, once in a while, a patient can develop, you know, painful gynecomastia. And in that scenario, switching the spironolactone to epilirinone uh, would be a reasonable idea. So this patient has one plus or two plus pitting pedal edema. Stemmer sign is, you know, something that is done to see if a patient might have lymphedema where you actually uh, pinch the uh, skin over the dorsum of the foot. And if you can't, uh, then it possibly points towards either lymphedema or, you know, the person might be significantly obese. With fluid edema, you can obviously, you know, lift the skin up. So that would be a negative stemmer sign. So our patient has several reasons, as mentioned, for pedal edema, uh, sleep apnea, COPD with core pulmonale. Of course, his diastolic dysfunction puts him at uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Uh, it could be iatrogenic because of, you know, the calcium channel blocker that the patient is on. So uh, another question from the resident is, what are your thoughts on our patient with chronic headaches and bilateral tinnitus since the MRI, MRA, and MRV of the brain were normal? As discussed before, other etiologies for chronic headaches and bilateral tinnitus with a good neurological exam and imaging studies have ruled out several etiologies, and therefore I feel his chronic headaches and bilateral tinnitus might be related to his erythrocytosis. Fortunately, the patient is on aspirin now, and we hope that his erythrocytosis should respond to discontinuing tobacco, holding off on chlorothaladone with better treatment or with better control of his COPD. And if this patient is on a CPAP, hopefully the hypoxia and the hypercarbia should improve and that should probably take care of his erythrocytosis. The other thing is he's at high altitude, you know, whether he can move to, you know, sea level, you know, that, that should also help his erythrocytosis. If all these measures do not help, and of course, we've ruled this patient out for polycythemia vera, then one, one might consider phlebotomies, you know, drawing out blood to kind of reduce the red cell mass, uh, reduce the hemoglobin and hematocrit in this patient. Attempting to help our patient, what else do you recommend? Jessica, I would recommend, you know, lifestyle modifications, you know, a heart-healthy, diabetic, weight-reducing diet with exercise. I'd probably offer, you know, tobacco for his tobacco cessation, verinicline or Chantix, along with uh, nicotine replacement therapy and behavioral therapy, which is superior to bupropion or Welbutrin plus nicotine replacement therapy and behavioral therapy. I would also have him, you know, stop his alcohol. One could consider cognitive behavioral therapy along with 
naltrexone, which is better than a camprosate and cognitive behavioral therapy. And of course, descending from, you know, Mount Taos, where he lives at an altitude of approximately 11,000 feet, should certainly help his uh, secondary erythrocytosis. What would be your considerations as far as immunizations and cancer screenings go? Yeah, that is a great question, uh, Jessica. So consider fit testing. You know, his average risk, you know, doing a fit or a fecal immunochemical testing would be absolutely fine unless the patient agrees to a colonoscopy. There are other modalities as well, you know, stool guide times three or a cologuard. Uh, because he's a smoker and he's in the age group, I would also recommend a low-dose CT chest. Uh, as far as cancer screening goes. Now, he's completed his vaccinations or his immunizations until about 20 years ago. So at this point, I would recommend him getting a PSV 20 pneumococcal vaccine. I would also recommend a Tdap, a Shingrix vaccine. I would, of course, recommend COVID vaccine. And come October, you know, recommend the influenza vaccine. And of course, you know, uh, the hepatitis B vaccine or, as well. So another consideration would be, you know, if he says, well, what about surgery? The other thing to consider is surgery for sleep apnea and or bariatric surgery. Although the guidelines are that the patient should have tried positive airway pressure ventilation for at least three months, only then, you know, you could consider, you know, either bariatric surgery or oral surgery. How would you plan follow-up care and visits for our patient? Yes, absolutely. So the patient's hemoglobin A1C for his age, I think is okay, but I could consider putting him on metformin because metformin like the SGLT2 inhibitor or the GLP-1 agonist does not cause hypoglycemia. I would continue with the SGLT2 inhibitor with considerations of uh, using semaglutide orally or once weekly injection as a GLP-1 agonist. Make sure that before you start a GLP-1 agonist, you know, you've ruled out, you know, family history of uh, medullary carcinoma of the thyroid and the MEN1 uh, syndromes, along with you want to make sure that the patient doesn't have a history of pancreatitis. And then I would check a hemoglobin A1C in about, you know, three to six months and perhaps maybe once or twice a year thereafter. I would certainly put him on aspirin, 81 milligrams a day. I would put him on high-dose atorvastatin or rosuvastatin. I would continue his ACE inhibitor, amlodipine, and add spironolactone. I would put him on oxygen by nasal cannula to keep his saturations above 90% and check his oxygen saturations in about two or three days. Uh, I would make sure that he is using his CPAP machine. And the thing that I forgot to mention with a statin is before I start him on statin, I would like to get an AST, an ALT, CPK, and a TSH. And if they're normal, then I would put him on, you know, a high-dose statin and check his lipids in about six weeks with goals of trying to get his LDL cholesterol to be definitely, you know, below 100 milligram percent, preferably below 70 milligram percent. And on spironolactone, as I mentioned, I would check his potassium and creatinine in three days, then in a week, and then once monthly for three months, and then every three months for subsequently. Uh, I would have him monitor his blood sugars to keep his most of his fasting blood sugars below 130 and his two-hour postprandial blood sugars below 180 milligram percent. I would like his blood pressure to be definitely below 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. Uh, I would have him monitor his weights weekly and I would recommend getting an echocardiogram in three to six months to evaluate his pulmonary pressures. 
because if the pulmonary pressures have improved, this would be a good sign since pulmonary hypertension secondary to sleep apnea is probably the only etiology for treatable pulmonary hypertension. We see that he had a low testosterone level. I would repeat his uh, 8 a.m. testosterone levels. I would have a nurse call him in two weeks to see how he's doing and uh, probably do a telemedicine visit with him in about six weeks. And I would plan for maybe a three to six month in-person evaluation. So I have a lot of questions here. Which statin would you choose? What would you consider doing before starting the patient on a statin? When would you consider checking lipids? When would you consider checking liver enzymes? What if his LDL cholesterol does not come to a desired level? What if his triglycerides do not budge? Uh, great questions. So I would check AST and ALT along with the CPK and TSH before starting the patient on a statin. Check lipids in six weeks to make sure they are where they ought to be, and then perhaps check them in a year. Checking liver enzymes after you've started a patient on a statin, it's probably recommended only if the patient becomes symptomatic, uh, is jaundiced. Only then you check for, uh, for liver enzymes. As far as the dose of the patient's statin, he already is on maximum dose and is compliant with lifestyle changes. If I had to add something, I'd probably consider ezetimibe, or also called zetia, to get his LDL cholesterol where we want it to be. His triglycerides should come down as his uh, diabetes and his weight are under better control, and he has cut back on his alcohol. I would actually definitely not use gemfibrozil given its track record when combined with the statin. So if the triglycerides do not budge, I could probably consider ethyl in this patient. What are a few side effects of SGLT2 inhibitors? What are some important things to consider before initiating GLP-1 agonists? And how often do metformin, GLP-1, and SGLT2 inhibitors cause symptomatic hypoglycemia? Yes, absolutely, Jessica. So SGLT2 inhibitors, besides causing glycosuria and polyuria, they can result in significant fluid losses. They can cause non-ketotic, diabetic ketoacidosis, and predispose one to urinary tract infections and genital fungal infections. The SGLT2 inhibitors need to be held as the GFR drops below 30. Before starting a person on a GLP-1 agonist, MEN1, or multiple endocrine neoplasia 1 syndrome, and medullary carcinoma of the thyroid, especially a family history along with a history of pancreatitis, uh, should be ruled out. Our patient also has low testosterone levels. What are your concerns here? Yes, absolutely, Jessica. So this patient has plenty of reasons for low testosterone. His smoking, his obesity, his diabetes, his hypertension, his hyperlipidemia, and of course, his sleep apnea. I would not be surprised that this patient has low libido as well as erectile dysfunction. You see, the testicles are a vascular bed, uh, which are stimulated by uh, follicular-stimulating hormone through the seminiferous tubules to produce sperms. And the luteinizing hormones, they stimulate the Leydig cells to produce testosterone. Most of the testosterone is in the bound form, I would say about 98%, and only about 1% to 2% is free testosterone. As one ages, one's sex hormone binding globulin levels increase, as they also do with HIV. 
Conversely, your sex hormone binding globulin decrease with diabetes because we know that testosterone can elevate blood pressure as well as result in an elevated hemoglobin and hematocrit. And with this borderline elevated PSA, I would be skeptical about starting him on testosterone therapy. Besides, we also need another testosterone level before we say that his testosterone levels are low. Would you consider repeating an echo? I would recommend getting an echo in about three to six months to see how his pulmonary hypertension is doing. Once we confirm low testosterone, his borderline elevated PSA is thought to be related to BPH and his H&H come down and his blood pressure also comes down, then one could consider initiating testosterone therapy, otherwise not. But again, before I do that, I want a baseline CBC. I want a baseline uh, PSA to be normal. In the interim, what we could offer the patient are PDE5 inhibitors for erectile dysfunction. What do people with low testosterone usually present with? And what percentage of people with erectile dysfunction have low testosterone? How and what treatment modalities would you consider? And would you consider a testicular ultrasound or an MRI of the brain? Great questions, Jessica. So up to about 60% of people with low testosterone have erectile dysfunction. If we confirm that the patient has two low readings of testosterone, measuring luteinizing hormone, follicular stimulating hormone, and prolactin levels should be included to determine if the problem is primarily in the testicles, which would have low testosterone levels and normal to elevated FSH and LH levels. Conversely, if it is secondary to pituitary causes, one would have normal to low levels of LH and FSH along with low testosterone. Most causes are central. The three important symptoms with low testosterone are low libido, erectile dysfunction, and poor penetration. Treatment modalities are either parenteral testosterone therapy, which is the best way to administer testosterone, or you could choose oral, nasal, or transcutaneous preparations of testosterone. I would not recommend an ultrasound of the testicles unless one discovers an abnormality and palpation. If secondary causes or central causes are considered as a reason for low testosterone, you could consider getting an MRI of the brain if a person has signs of raised intracranial tension or has, let's say, papilledema or visual field defects. And if the testosterone on two readings is less than 150, then you might think, could the person have a pituitary tumor? To close out our conversation today, please give us an overview of our patient. Sure, Jessica, I can try. So we have a male in his mid-60s with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and a 30-pack year history of tobacco use, and with 20 years of consuming three ounces of uh, 60% proof liquor, with an exercise capacity equaling one met, residing at high altitude, was discovered to have secondary erythrocytosis as the etiology for his chronic headaches, bilateral tinnitus, and erythromyalgia which resolved a month ago on aspirin and lifestyle modifications, along with the medications that we put the patient on and CPAP. Spironolactone was initiated for his resistant hypertension, which seems to be doing better. He has type 2 diabetes mellitus with microvascular disease and CKD, G2, A2, and he is on metformin, canagliflozin, ACE inhibitor, hydostatin, 
along with 81 milligrams of aspirin. His ASCVD risk score is greater than 20%, and he is at risk for heart failure. He has confirmed renal artery stenosis, and hence peripheral artery disease, and other atherosclerotic diseases, with plans to intensify medical management to prevent surgical interventions. My evaluation confirmed COPD, GOLD-3, for which he is on maximum doses of LAMA, LABA, inhaled corticosteroid, and rescue inhaler, along with three liters of oxygen by nasal cannula. He has severe obstructive sleep apnea, for which he is on auto CPAP. He has pulmonary hypertension type 2 and 3. Our plan is to get AST and ALT, along with TSH and CPK, before initiating high-dose Atorvo or Rosuvostatin, and to check his LDL in six weeks, with goals of getting it below 70 mg percent within a year. We will consider adding a GLP-1 agonist if there is no family history of pancreatitis, nor a family history of medullary carcinoma of the thyroid, and we'll check a hemoglobin A1c in a year. Our patient is on oxygen, and our plan is to check his oxygen saturation in two to three days. Our goals for his diabetes, his hemoglobin A1c of 7.5 is perfectly okay. We would like his blood pressures to be below 130 over 80. If repeat testosterone levels are low, we will consider evaluating with luteinizing hormone, FSH, and prolactin. If his repeat testosterone levels are below 150, I might consider getting an MRI of the brain. We will have the nurse call him in two weeks. We will get a telemedicine appointment for the patient in about six weeks after he's had the imaging studies and the labs that we had requested him. I would also do a PHQ-2, and if positive, follow it up with a PHQ-9. Another thing is, as mentioned, I would probably get an echocardiogram in about three to six months to evaluate his pulmonary pressures. Well, Dr. Harrison, thank you for your excellent care and guidance in our podcast today. We'll see you next time on Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds, and Case Reviews. Thank you so much, Jessica, and I thank everybody, and I hope this helps.